Ladies and gentlemen, these Warner Archive Collection podcasts are recorded a bit in advance of the time we make them available to the public. The podcast you're about to hear discusses the new DVD release of Jupiter's Darling, starring Esther Williams and Howard Keel. We recorded the podcast a day before Esther Williams' untimely passing. Untimely, I say, because even at 91 years of age, as her dear friend of over 20 years, I thought she would live forever, and she will live forever in our hearts. But at the time we recorded the podcast, I spoke of Esther in the present tense. As we celebrate the release of Jupiter's Darling, know that Esther was alive in our hearts at the time, as she will remain forever. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Seven sensational new releases come to DVD for the very first time from the Warner Archive Collection, and this week, we're here to tell you about them. First, we start off with Esther Williams' last MGM musical, Jupiter's Darling, co-starring Howard Keel, and it is the last Esther Williams movie from our library in which she stars to arrive on DVD. So that's big news for Esther Williams fans. For Betty Davis fans, we have Front Page Woman from 1935 and Winter Meeting from 1948. And then for fans of TNT telefilms, where they know drama, they knew television movies, made for television movies when they started. And in the late 80s and early 90s, Right up until a few years ago, they were making quite a few original films. We've added some of them to the Warner Archive collection and are delighted to add four more to the TNT Originals lineup. So they include Houdini, Spymaker, The Secret Life of Ian Fleming, Amelia Earhart, The Final Flight, and finally, The Lost Capone, starring Eric Roberts. So... Let's get into all of these varied cinematic delights and begin our discussion with Jupiter's Darling. I'm about ready to take a dip in the pool of history. (laughs) Don't hit your head in the process. (laughs) Just to start out, I'd never heard of this movie before it came. And then I was shocked. Nobody had ever told me that there was a Hannibal the Musical before because... This was You knew about Cannibal the Musical. I did know about Cannibal the Musical, but there was never a Hannibal exclamation point the musical before and I loved this film. Oh, it's a, it's a very wonderful underrated film and it did not get a good reception when it opened and it has overcome that original negativity as similar to what we talked about with Sincerely Yours. Time has been kind to this movie. I just don't think People were prepared for a platine pastiche in the 50s. But now, thanks to Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, people are much more ready for a real Roman-style comedy that harkens back to Plautus. Now, the pedigree for Jupiter's Darling is quite something since it's based on a play by Robert Sherwood, who is literally 
well, he's a giant in letters, and he was also a giant among men, since I think he was like six foot eight. Literally a giant of literature. Uh, he was good friends with Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, member of the Gunquin table. She used to say, as they were walking down the street, they looked like a pipe organ, because hmm. Benchley was six <laughs> and she was like five two. Acclaimed playwright, acclaimed screenwriter, worked with Hitchcock. He wrote a film that I believe is on the archive from before my day, but it's also one of my favorite films, Idiot's Delight with Clark Gable. Am I right? Is that on the archive? Yes, and Abe Lincoln in Illinois is also his. Sherwood would say that he would set out to write a message play and he would always end up with an entertainment instead. And that's certainly the case with this. And the original play was from 1927. The Road to Rome. And it was an anti-war play. You can see the origins of that in this film. But at this time, by 1955, and this is is a cinemascope spectacle film. Very much so. You know, it's like the, you know, Ten Commandments or whatever. There are elephants. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are elephants. People might have not noticed this at the time, but it's a send-up of the genre. Oh, yeah. It's a comedy. It's got this great, like, it's, you know, it's underplayed. And it well, ties and, into and, one of archive releases because it has one of your favorite actors, Dan. George Sanders. George Sanders. This period of the height of the Roman Republic is actually my personal favorite period of history. So about a minute into the film, when I see George Sanders standing up and he's playing Fabius Maximus, the dictator of Rome, I was just dumbfounded and overjoyed. So a few months ago, (laughs) or probably almost close to a year ago, we were talking about King Richard and the Crusaders and the King's Thief just in one podcast. Right. And he was in so many different color lavish epics epics as well as black and white dark dramas but very few films did he sing Mm. and he's quite a voice and this isn't the first time that audiences heard him sing because in 1953's fox musical call me madam with an irving berlin score he held his own up against ethel merman and he did all his own singing he had a really great voice and it's too bad that he was very proud because everybody thought he was dubbed because he had such a great well, singing worked, I think he released a few albums, too. Probably. Did, wow. Mm-hmm. It was a good surprise. And he, again, nails this role because this is the kind of role that he would have if it was serious. Yes. So let's let's talk about the cast. We have Esther Williams is the leading lady. And, yes, there is a swimming sequence in and this quite film. A Multiple. But... This is not a swimming picture. No. This is a very different kind of role for her. And it ultimately was her last role at MGM because she was very particular about scripts. And she left the studio kind of prematurely. She is a friend of mine, and I've known her for many, many years. And she's told me in detail about how she was not pleased with what the studio was offering her. And... Jupiter's Darling was her goodbye, and she packed up her, she had her maid come with her and packed up her dressing room at MGM and left after 12 years or 13 years at the studio. But this film opened at the Music Hall, as did most of her big pictures. What's interesting about it is MGM musicals are usually produced by either Arthur Freed, Joe Pasternak, or Jack Cummings. This film was produced by George Wells, who was primarily a screenwriter. He produced a few movies, but it wasn't a byproduct of any of the three musical units. And I think it really stands on its own. What ties it to the past of the MJ musical is that George Sidney directed it, and George Sidney directed Esther's breakthrough musical, Bathing Beauty, in 1944, in which he co-starred with Red Skelton. So 
I was actually at, uh, it was the, the premiere of That's Entertainment 3, where I was with George, Sidney, and Esther Williams. Wow. And, Esther, and George says to Esther, well, if it isn't, my bathing beauty and my Jupiter's darling. You know? <laughs> so um, George was very, he was a very boisterous, wonderful guy. And uh, Esther was very uh, fond of him. But he was very creative with the camera and did a lot of things with this movie that were ahead of its time. Well, the two underwater sequences that you're in are, I thought they're pretty notable. The, fir- the first the, the one. The fantasy underwater sequence with the statues, with the statues is, coming is, to is life. remarkable. With the, the little Cupid kids mm-hmm. floating <laughs> by is a stunner. And then the, the second sequence was actually more of a, an underwater chase, yes. which was really well filmed and it was quite dramatic. So as Dan mentioned, The Road to Rome by Sherwood was the basis. MGM had owned this property for years and the decision to finally musicalize it ended up being Jupiter's Darling. At one point, it was considered as a dramatic vehicle for Garbo. Really? That (laughs) kind of brings it full circle. And that was in one of those promotional pieces that I read Uh, and now I'm putting two two together. I'm now trying to imagine it as a dramatic. Well, because the other thing is like the character that Esther Williams plays, Amethyst, is such a an Amazonian outgoing right. and, and she's great at him. it's just like wow look at those biceps I mean she yeah. really pulls off like this is a charioteer this is a Roman warrior woman can't imagine Garbo in that guy no <laughs> very yeah, very different but I can imagine her sneaking off to see Hannibal though the wow. uh, leading man is Howard Keel and Howard Keel had played opposite Esther in Texas Carnival which is available from our archive collection and uh, had also been opposite her in Pagan Love Song, which is available on a Warner Home Video Esther Williams collection. But this was their reunion picture, as it were. And then you have Marge and Gower Champion. Was this also not their last MGM? This was their last MGM film, for sure. I think they did another film after this at another studio, if I have the chronology correctly. But they were under contract to MGM, and they're in Give a Girl a Break, which is out through Warner mm-hmm. Archive, and of course Showboat, and uh, Lovely to Look At, which is from the Warner Archive collection. And uh, they also did a film called Everything I Have is Yours, in which they were the stars. And we don't have a good enough master to release that uh. yet, but we're working on it if you're Margin Gower Champion fans out there. They but have a, a they wonderful— have a very special number. Oh, yes. The slave auction, the Roman slave auction number was, I like that one because it was quite if a song and dance number. If this be slavery, then this... Yes. Yeah. Very notable. Yeah, it's a little bit ahead of its time. Yes. Again. It was yes. funny. And uh, the lyrics are by Harold Adamson. The score is by Burton Lane, who's responsible for Finian's Rainbow on a Clear Day You Could See Forever and wrote, was under contract to MGM as far back as Dancing Lady in 1933. So there's there's a lot of pedigree to uh, Jupiter's Darling. Most importantly, as Matt mentioned, this is in Cinemascope. This is a brand new master in the 255 aspect ratio and glorious stereophonic sound. It's really the best way to experience colorful elephants. (laughs) Now, what is not colorful is a piece of bonus material that is on this disc. And that is a deleted sequence that is a reprise of the song I Have a Dream, there was a number with Esther. And in this film, usually Esther Mm -hmm. did her own singing because she had a lovely singing voice. 
But Joanne Greer provided her singing voice in this film. Mm. And Esther's character and George Sanders sing when their love is no longer, I had a dream. And then there is a dissolve to a dance as Marge and Gower Champion's characters part. This whole sequence was cut out of the film before release. And all that survived was a faded work print. And we put that together for the Laserdisc release of this film in the 90s. And that piece is available on this DVD as well. And it shows off the horrors of what can happen to Eastman Color because there was no color in this surviving print in the 90s. And I don't even know if that print is around anymore, but we do have this video master Thank goodness. And it was edited together from, you know, what had survived in the work print in the 90s. And it's about six minutes long. It's really quite substantial. Why do you think they cut it? Probably for time. They generally wanted to keep the running time. The running time of this movie is 96 minutes. Right. Were they envisioning the, the CBS Friday night movie <laughs> a decade later? I don't know. <laughs> well, there certainly is, is something of a television thing going on with the framing device. With the minstrel pointing to the screens, and then the story starts to run. And again, if you were to have watched this film on television when they used to do what they called MetroScan, which was oh, MGM boy. Labs' version of Pan and Scan, you'd have to yeah, right. They would have to pan way over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really, but it, really at least awful. you would see the the warning at the head of the film, which states it's the year two sixteen BC. Hannibal marched on Rome. And the history of this great march has been confusing, but this film will do nothing to clear it up. And how? <laughs> so let's go from one fabulous, legendary movie star, Esther Williams, to one of the icons of Warner Brothers from the 1930s and the 1940s as we span a 13-year gap in her, or I should say a 13-year span of her career, not a gap, because she made probably 30 films in between the two. Uh, 1935's Front Page Woman, starring Betty Davis and George Brent. And 1948's Winter Meeting, starring Betty Davis and a very young Jim Davis, who would later go on to star in Dallas. Front Page Woman, uh, George Brent, the co-star. It's worthy of mentioning that Betty Davis and George Brent were very close off-screen and collaborated on-screen 11, 12, 13 times, thereabouts? Many times, and I think one of the great things on this disc is you see the trailer. We're like, you know, George, let's get together and talk about Front Page Woman. (laughs) I love the the trailers like we saw on Massacre, where they actually filmed something special for the the trailer. Warner Brothers would do that a lot in the 40s and 30s. The original title of this movie was going to be Women Are Born Newspaper Men or something like uh, that. Yeah, Newspaper Women Are Bums or something like that. Yes. Well, that describes the plot well, of the film. But Front well. Page Women worked a lot better on the And marquee. it was a lot more true to their intent, which was, I would call this the bridging film between Front Page and His Girl Friday. <laughs> yeah, no. And his Front Page Woman is, they're definitely trying to, it's got the vibe of the front page, but it's missing the triangle. It's just a competition between two reporters, it's, but it has the same, you know, back police reporter, right. undercoving truth, a mysterious murder, comedy, stoolies. And the meticulous direction of one Michael Curtiz. This is a literal battle of the sexes. Yeah, the quick setup is George Brandt, is only going to be allowed to marry Betty Davis once he proves that she's a bad reporter. It's a bet. And there's a murder trial going on, and that's all you need to know about that. 
But what you do need to know is this film is briskly paced, has terrific ensemble performances, and, and the two stars are clearly having a ball delivering quips back and, and forth. They'll go to any length to prove the other one wrong, to, that they are the better newspaper person, which they didn't use. And this was made term. after Betty Davis had been loaned out to RKO to make of Human Bondage, so her star had risen, and of course Warner Brothers would give her a more meaty role in Dangerous, which was released later in 1935, uh, just I think two films after Front Page Woman. But this is really Davis establishing herself as truly uh, the first lady of Warner Brothers by 1935. That was pretty much in stone when she got that first Oscar. And then we go to 1948 and Winter Meeting, which is one of her last films made at the studio. The tagline to this film I like, so I'm going to say it very, with a low voice. You've told me your secret. Now I'll tell you mine. What are those secrets, Dan? Are you going to ruin it? I'm not going to ruin it, but I am going to say that this film has a most unexpected second act twist. You betcha. What a twist it is. I didn't see it coming at all. Did you have any inkling? No inkling. I was actually like, I had to like just stop and go, what? So it is a wintry romance tale. Now, my take on this film is that it's actually a serious screwball comedy. And let me explain (laughs) what I mean by that. That is a new one on me. (laughs) Now, a classic screwball comedy, the two people who should be together are not together because of usually some sort of class distinction or divorce. They travel to the magical land of Connecticut, which is much like the forest of Midsummer Night's Dream, where all such distinctions are erased, and they recognize each other in each other. Then they go back to the city where they have to work it out finally. And that is the pattern of this film. Although the true romance is, of course, with another figure. Well, I think that's a fascinating and unique take on this yeah. movie. Certainly one I would never have. Anytime anyone goes from New York to Connecticut in a movie, I perk up. Now, it depends if they take the New Haven Railroad or I-95. <laughs> Just a very quick setup pitch is that Betty Davis plays a spinster poetess and she lives in a beautiful apartment. And how? Where a naval hero is coming to town and she's uh, met him. And he falls for her, but they're not really the the same type of person, but they're drawn together, but they each have a secret. As I was watching the film, you know, Jim Davis is good, but I was thinking, like, boy, this really seems like this would be a perfect part for John Garfield. That's very possible. He had left Warner Brothers by that time, but I I don't know. Both Janice Page and John Hoyt are supporting characters in this, and they're both really, really good. Janice Page was under contract to Warner Brothers at this time and was doing varied kind of roles. We talked about Cheyenne Mm -hmm. with Dennis Morgan in which she plays and also she did some musicals as well. And it was really at other studios and on the New York stage where she gained greater fame. And you can also see Janice Page in such uh, wonderful Warner Archive releases as Bachelor in Paradise. So Janice Page is, thank God, very healthy and vital and still... uh, at Hollywood Functions, so a shout-out to the wonderful Janice Page. Well, I think that brings us now to the world of 90s biography telefilms. Yes, the T in TNT stands for True Story. Does it? Indeed. So the first story, chronologically, would be The Lost Capone. 1990. And this is directed by John Gray, 
who also directed The Day Lincoln Was Shot and The Hunley, which are both TNT original telefilms that we're happy to have as bestsellers in the Warner Archive collection. These films as a block, it, it's a very interesting block of films because, I mean, they are all biographies. You know, this is the beginning kind of of a form that is now much more established in television, and they play very fast, and they really uh, use what what are what become more modern techniques that you see in uh, later films to really push the stories forward. And Eric Roberts is really quite remarkable. Well, I yeah, think like the three main all, male all leads, Ali, like, Ali Sheedy, uh, like Adrian Pastar plays the titular Las Capone, and then Titus Welliver. Probably more f- most familiar to people, thanks to his performances, The Man in Black and Lost, plays the brother Ralph Capone. And but Roberts and Welliver and Pastar are all really, really, really good in this. So if you only know the story of Al Capone from the movie Al Capone, which is in the Warner Archive collection, or The Untouchables with De Niro, this is about other members of his family. And as well as for the Al most, Capone. well, in the broad strokes, you're going to watch this film and go, this can't be true, but it's more or less true. It, yes. This one is pretty accurate. Yeah. And basically, uh, Al's kid brother and in, in real life, it was the older brother. In real life, it was the older brother. Okay. That, well, that's a little different. Yeah. But the younger brother thinks he killed a man in a street brawl, and he flees west where he finds himself settling in Nebraska, and he after becoming a school janitor, becomes the marshal of the town where he encounters and stops Al Capone's distribution network of of bootleggers that start coming through his county, thus putting brother against brother. And this is alcohol we're talking about, not pirated videos. No. (laughs) Bootleggers are a whole other thing now. Yeah, and his his brother really was known as Two-Gun Heart. That's absolutely true. Yeah, he had changed his name, so it took some time for everybody to realize that there was a battle between Capones. Now, in real life, we don't know if there ever was a battle between the Capones, but as portrayed in the film, it is terrifically entertaining and very, very well performed. Now, if someone had iPhones back then, they would have recorded (laughs) the battle on their phone. Capone on the iPhone. And it would be on YouTube, and then we'd all get to see them fight. It would be on Tosh.0. But we don't know. So what we can say is that this is the first of the four biopic telefilms. And really, a shout out to Ted Turner and TNT of the era. Uh, Mr. Turner founded Turner Network Television in 1988. And in order to establish that network, which is now very, very different and also a huge successful entity within Time Warner, but to put TNT on the map, he put budgets into creating these films for TNT domestically, which were shown theatrically overseas. That was my next question, especially like like watching both Capone and Spy Maker Secret Life of Ian Fleming. I'm like, they play like real films and not TV movies, not to denigrate TV movies, but, but TV movies generally play out a little differently. Now that distinction isn't so much there. First class so. efforts by all talents behind and in front of the camera, which leads us to the next film chronologically. This was my favorite of the bunch. I bet. Spy Maker, The Secret Life of Ian Fleming. With Ian Fleming played not so coincidentally by an actor by the name of Connery. Connery. Jason, Jason Connery. Connery. Jason does, you know, I believe it. He's yeah, he's really, really good. His co-star is Kristen Scott Thomas. You have to be Who? good if you're acting with her. And this she was great. Before she started whispering to horses. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> this is probably my favorite example of metafiction. We, I never met a fiction look. I didn't like. While it was a, a secret life of Ian Fleming, Shh. 
It's probably quite so secret. We certainly, other biographers, don't know about all of these details. They just know about the evictions from the private schools and the work for the bank and the work for intelligence. They don't know the secret behind that. And the best part about this film is that it is structured like a James Bond movie. It has all of the elements found in a classic James Bond film, it's, but it's setting up all of the James Bond books and movies to and very, follow. very specifically Casino Royale. I mean, very this is just like all the ingredients that you see behind the scenes, what then became the basis for Casino Royale. It's got more references Un to, bonk. to uh, Bond films and novels than, Cold lips. than the latest Star Trek film has to Star Trek II. Like, Q. it's got so many... Yeah, his friend Quincy happens to be a tinker. And ironically, at, at the time, this was before the Bond franchise got reignited with Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye, the Bond franchise had kind of uh, that's true, right? Sunk this. the remarkable resurgence of the franchise with Goldeneye and Pierce Brosnan then led to, you know, now Daniel what we Craig have today. Yeah. I mean, so the franchise has been around for 50 years, but Ian Fleming was the start of all of it. This is his meta oh. story, if you will. And uh, Jason Connery, the son of Sean Connery, portraying Ian Fleming was a bit of brilliant casting on. It, TNT's part. This film works on so many levels, it is a repeat viewing experience. Yeah, I was intrigued to see that one of the producers was Haim Saban, who's most famous, of course, for Power Rangers. Right. Then we move to 1994, and we have Amelia Earhart, The Final Flight, starring Oscar-winning actress Diane Keaton in a rare made-for-television performance. Yeah. And Rutger Hauer is yeah, her co-star. I'd like to ask our listeners a question. Oh, yes, please do. Do you like good actors? Yeah, I do like good actors. Well, then you're going to really enjoy Amelia Earhart, because in addition to Diane Keaton and Riker Howard, you've got Bruce Dern and Paul Guilfoyle. I also have a question for the listeners. Do you like Diane Keaton wearing ties? <laughs> yes, I do. La-di-da, la-di-da. Well, Any she Holly really... Aviatrix? I, I don't right, know. Though. It's the ties and the pants and yes. the haircut. And she yes. Well, the like, haircut, oh. she looks just like the yeah, photographs yeah. that we've seen. But uh, <laughs> this was a production from Avenue Pictures, which was a company that was making theatrical releases at the time. And I think this is an example from almost 20 years ago of subject matter that people thought wasn't box office enough even mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. to get people into theaters. Now it would be 10 times harder. Right. But at the time, TNT provided the place that people could tell those kind of stories. So you had big stars like Diane Keaton on TNT telling the stories they wanted to tell. And that's why this is a first-class effort all around. Absolutely. So last we moved to the end of the 90s in 1998's Houdini. And this is not the first film biography of Houdini, but it is, I think, the most recent. There have been many. So this could be the last Houdini. Certainly, much <laughs> like Houdini's ghost, we can always summon Oof. him again. Those of you who are familiar with the very Hollywood version of Houdini's life that was made at Paramount in the 50s with Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh will find this oh, yeah. TNT Houdini quite different. As you will if you're familiar with the 70s TV movie with Paul Michael Glazer. That's right. Houdini, no doubt fascinating guy fascinating story and this uh, story starts with him well it the wraparound is a seance where Houdini's wife because I, about yearly 
on Halloween, she would attempt to uh, contact Houdini's spirit because on his deathbed, he promised if anybody could escape from the afterlife and come down to make contact on Earth, he could. And that is the bookend of the uh, whole film. And then we go in onto moments of his life, early immigration, his early stage acts, and of course, his relationship with his wife. What I loved about this film is that there isn't any preamble. It just nope. starts. Just goes. From the beginning, you're into the action. In real life, it's worthy to note that yes. Harry Houdini was not just a famous escape artist. He was he also was, in movies. He was a major movie star. In fact, he was very much the Harrison Ford of the tens. <laughs> and I need to point this out because most people don't know that. Da the I'm, first, I, Let me just say this. Dan is very proud of this. The first ever fight with a robot was done by Harry Houdini in a Harry wow. Houdini film. Yeah. So it was like before Johnny Sacco, there was Houdini. <laughs> yes. This film really hits the point of his life very, very accurately for the most part. Yeah. And it also has a pretty great supporting cast. There's Paul Servino, David Warner, who was also in the uh, Ian Fleming film. Keep your eye out for a young Mark Ruffalo. And Houdini fans would like this. Uh, Ron Perlman. And actually, you know, I thought they did a good job of explaining the showmanship of the escape and showing him how he did some of the tricks. And, of course, we get back to the wonderful seance, and I don't want to ruin anything, but there is a uh, boffo ending. Okay. So we're adding four more TNT originals to our already burgeoning lineup of TNT originals within the Warner Archive collection. There will be more to come later in the year. But these four are certainly worth checking out. Also worth checking out is our Warner Archive Instant Streaming Service. Let's talk about that for a bit. Well, we've got some new titles up, George. We always have new titles. And they're always lots of fun. Now, La keep in mind that we pre-taped this. So what's up now might not be up a if year. If you're listening to this in the year 2024, exactly. it may be changed. Matt, what is your Warner Archive Instant Streaming Pick of the Week? What was burned into my brain last night was Not With My Wife, You Don't. And that is from 1967 with Tony Curtis, George C. Scott, and, of course, Carol O'Connor. Uh, isn't Verna Lisi in this movie, too? Uh, yes, but I, I didn't quite know how to pronounce the name. <laughs> well, when I was growing up, Verna Lisi was pretty much the be-all and end-all of sexy seductresses on the silver screen. We've got... Melvin Frank, Norman Panama, and the Saul Bass opening. As someone who enjoys graphics, it was just very simple, but it sets the tone, and boom, we're off and running. Yeah. Instant.warnerarchive.com is the URL for the new Warner Archive streaming service. And let's not forget that Not With My Wife You Don't is available on DVD from warnerarchive.com. You can own it forever and have it on your shelf in a gorgeous widescreen master so you can stream it or you can buy it we give you a choice we have a lot of those and and again some of these films make great gifts you can view them instantly and then package them up and give them away dan what did you get to see this oh, week continue my mission of spotlighting films that have perhaps been too overlooked in my humble opinion i'm recommending Ice Pirates. Oh, yeah. Wait, didn't I recommend Ice Pirates a Did few you? weeks ago? But uh, you know what? Ice Pirates is so good, you should recommend it twice. It's in HD, and it is 
probably my favorite 80s science fiction comedy. I think it's the best science fiction comedy that Robert York ever made. I will uh, agree. I agree with that. Well, if I did do a repeat, I'll just quickly say, well, then you should watch Gun Crazy. <laughs> I will. My selection ties into some of our new DVD releases in that we're talking about the first lady of Warner Brothers, Betty Davis. We have a few of her films on Warner Archive Instant. Uh, yes. But the one I want to talk about today is in HD, and it is a reteaming of the two co-stars Betty Davis had in Now Voyager, which is one of her greatest films. Mm. Claude Rains and Paul Henry co-star with Betty Davis in Deception. And this is really a juicy melodrama with... Lots of plot points that keep you on the edge of your seat and bravura performances from all three stars. It's really the quintessential Warner Brothers film of the 40s, Deception. I assume people are deceiving each other in the film. Mm, Could be. All right. Well, that brings us to our letters section. And boy, listen to this pile of letters. Oh, come on. You got to read at least one. We sure will. Hey, who's this from? This is from Jimmy in Saraland, Alabama. Perhaps you've heard him before. Well, you Definitely would... our most loyal letter hack. He is our most loyal letter hack. And please, please, people, send us some letters, too. Don't let Jimmy have all the fun. Jimmy is really dominating the charts right now with, with a lot of letters, and he reliably writes them in crayon. Can't say enough great things about Instant Warner. Hey, oh, See, timely. us, too. I would enjoy seeing the That's Entertainment series on the site. I'm wondering if there are plans to have That's Entertainment 4 as well. Thanks again, Jimmy. Well, as the person who was responsible for giving birth to That's Entertainment 3, I could say I would love to see a That's Entertainment 4. Me too. But I think the likelihood of that happening is unlikely. But it took us 20 years to get from That's Entertainment 1 to That's Entertainment 3. So... Who knows? Something could happen. The irony of it is, is that 20 years ago Mm -hmm. to this date, we were just completing the filming of the new sequences for That's Entertainment 3, which was released in May of 1994. But it was in the spring of 93 that we shot all the new footage. So that was certainly a a high point for me. But we would love to see the That's Entertainment films enter Warner Archive Instant. And someday that might happen. But in the meantime, there are plenty of great MGM musicals entering into the Warner Archive Instant collection as well as on DVD from Warner Archive Collection. You can see the source. That's right. Hey, we've got another. Jupiter's Darling, as a matter of fact, is is excerpted in the Esther Williams sequence in That's Entertainment 3 the editors put together a great montage of her various swimming sequences uh, and the statues coming to life uh, was in how there. Could, how could you not put that in there? Well, and I thought that was great <laughs> that they added an extra clunk because they didn't <laughs> use – they'd used one piece of music for the whole montage, which right. was from various different films. And you could tell that one because that was CinemaScope and everything else was right. uh, 137. When all the statues' heads put together, they right. used these coconuts <laughs> to get a clunk. Oh. And uh, I'm not one for adding sound effects to vintage clips, but in that case, it worked. That worked. you got to make an exception because if you were underwater, you'd hear that clunk. Now when I watch that sequence again, I'm going to be like, what happened to the clunk? Well, the clunk isn't in Jupiter's Darling. Now it's in my brain, though. It needs to be in there. Because it's definitely a clunk moment. Jimmy, thank you for that letter. And everyone else out there, please 
Send us your questions. We will read your letter on the air and we will answer them the best we can. And you can send it to Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. Be sure to check out our website for the DVDs. It's shop.warnerarchive.com. For the new instant streaming service, it's instant.warnerarchive.com. But no matter how you slice it, there's great entertainment coming your way from the Warner Archive Collection, and we're here to talk about it on these podcasts each and every week. So thanks for listening. I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. Fabius Maximus, dictator of Rome. Have a great day and look for the next Warner Archive podcast. <laughs>